Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm just going to start off by saying this has been one of the most incredibly convicting, continues to convict passages that I may have ever had to preach through. And the reason being is because most of you know me and have spent time with me. And so just so you know, it has been a work in my heart as well. And so I'm not up here trying to communicate that I've got it figured out. I'm up here saying, hey, we're going to have to work through this together because I need you. And hopefully you feel you need help, maybe not from me, but from each other. So Matthew chapter 5. And last week we preached on how Jesus announced, and we went through the Beatitudes, and we kind of talked how people were probably thinking that Jesus is introducing something new, that he's introducing a new way to believe to these Jewish people on the side of a mountain somewhere in Galilee. And then Jesus says, just so you know, I haven't come to abolish the law, talking about the Mosaic law. I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. If you didn't hear the message, go back and listen last week because I can't run through it all again tonight. But then at the end, he kind of leaves this, this cliffhanger. We were left on a cliffhanger last week because he says, you must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes in order to spend eternity with me, basically. And at that time, the people would have thought there's no way that I'm good enough. I, I don't live in a way that's better than the scribes and Pharisees. So how am I, just a working guy trying to make it, going to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? And then Jesus, through the rest of chapter 5, goes through these commands. He goes through some sections of the law, some which are part of the Ten Commandments and others which some people have taken some freedom on, and he tries to explain. So again, we're calling the series going through Matthew, we're calling it Your Kingdom Come. What does it look like when we really pray, Your Kingdom Come, Your Will Be Done? How does that play out in our lives? And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we've had these different, so the next couple weeks we're just calling this a heart check. Jesus is doing a heart check. It's not funny. I just saw some people's faces that just immediately hung their head down going, oh, no. And so tonight is kind of heart check number one. And what Jesus is challenging them on, and we talked about it last week, is the Pharisees had taken these laws that were given by Moses, that were given them as uh, really Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they, Pharisees had taken those and added so much more to them. And now what Jesus is doing is he is challenging. And I don't know if you've heard this. Again, I've worked at um, three or four different Bible colleges. And so you see things really portrayed in front of you. And, but you might hear people talk about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Well, that's the letter of the law. The spirit of the law is different. And what Jesus is trying to communicate to them in this, last week saying, I've come to fulfill the law, 
is he wants them to understand what the spirit of the law really is. And the spirit of the law is to show human beings their sinful nature, their desperate need for a savior. It teaches human beings, sinful human beings, how to properly glorify God and give him the love that, and, and worship and adoration that is due him. And it's teaching human beings how to put other people's interests ahead of your own. That's the spirit of the law. That's when the Pharisees asked him, well, what is the greatest commandment? Trying to catch Jesus. And he says, oh, I can sum it up in two. The first is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the actual spirit of the law is to show us our sinful nature, our desperate need for a savior, point us to glorifying God and preferring the other person. It is not to help justify something we want to do. And I see this all the time. And if you're not sure, uh, talk to a police officer. Because in our minds, we do this. We say, well, the letter of the law is 55 miles per hour. That's for people who don't drive as good as me. The letter of the law is don't text and drive, but obviously, they're not good drivers. They need that. I'm fine. And we can go through, and normally when we start to use the spirit of the law, it's to something for me that works in my benefit, but the spirit of the law is never about making an exception for me. So the spirit of the law is to show us our sinful nature, our desperate need for a savior, point us to glorifying God, or preferring the other person. So join with me, and again, we'll be repeating this a lot as we go through the rest of chapter 5. Join with me, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, now remember, we're coming right out of, you must be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And I love what Jesus is doing here, and I'm, the, the way that you picture it is he's like, introducing all of these new things and saying, I've come to uh, fulfill the law. And they're like, whoa, that's quite a claim. And he goes, and surely you've heard it said from long ago, you shall not murder. And I'm curious what they're like, whoa, is he going to say we can now murder? Because this has been changing quickly. And it's interesting because, or maybe he just said, you've heard it said that uh, murder is wrong. And everyone's like, now that I agree with. In fact, if I was to say, by the way, folks, tonight, I want you to walk away with this. Premeditated murder is wrong. Mo wow, no amens in there. That's concerning. If anyone was like, ooh, I had a problem with that part, we should have a conversation. 
with other people present who can protect me. So Jesus is saying, you have heard it said that murder is wrong. And then Jesus takes it further. Jesus takes it further into the heart. So point number one, murder starts in the heart. Murder starts in the heart. Jesus is showing them that the outward action isn't the problem. It is a heart condition. It's a heart condition. And I want you to notice the path that Jesus walks us down, walks them down, walks us down to explain that the problem is our heart. He says, you have heard it said. And this has been passed down since the Ten Commandments were given. And even before, Leviticus tells us that even before those Ten Commandments were actually given, this was just the rule of God's people, that murder is bad. From the Garden of Eden, from Cain killing Abel, murder is bad. You can repeat that with me. Murder is bad. It's one thing you take from tonight. Murder is bad. But Jesus is going to continue this. He starts here. You have heard it said from Exodus 20, verse 13, while Moses is giving the Ten Commandments. And this pattern will continue through the rest of chapter 5. He will say, you have heard it said. And Jesus is pointing out a faulty interpretation of the law, which caused wrong application. And last week we discussed how the Pharisees and the scribes sincerely believed and had written down that it's okay to hate someone. It's okay to, to think terribly of somebody else, that it's okay to have mean thoughts as long as you don't act on them. But the thought life was, wasn't a thing, it was just actions. As long as you don't murder someone, you're, you're okay. And we'll see that continue through the rest of chapter 5, and feel free to read ahead. But Jesus is explaining that the spirit of the law was to point out our sin, show us our need for a Savior, teach us how to glorify God, and put others' interests ahead of our own. And when he takes it deeper, when he kind of kicks it up a notch here, he says, anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. And that should cover just about everybody then and just about everybody here tonight. Because this demonstrates that the root cause of our sin isn't what somebody else has done to us. He's talking to a Jewish people who, remember, we see that Jesus says he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. They were oppressed. They were like sheep without a shepherd. They, they felt lost. They felt like everybody was out to get them. They were having to fall underneath the rule of the hated Romans. They were having to fall underneath the rule of the Pharisees and scribes who were their religious leaders but held them to a standard that they just felt they could never achieve. Jesus is demonstrating that the root cause of our sin isn't what somebody else has done to us, but our sinful response to it. Proverbs 4.23, we use this often. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And then Jesus would say, will say in Matthew chapter 12, uh, 33-37, I'm just going to point out this one verse. He says, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Jesus says the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So I just happen to have a coffee mug up here. I, had a, I was at a meeting two weeks ago, and a pastor was there, and he goes, Rob, I don't know if I need any more than one hand to count the amount of times I've seen you without a coffee mug. 
And I've used this illustration before, but if I'm standing up here and I have my coffee mug, and it does have coffee in it, and it's an excuse to take a sip right now, and all of a sudden Will just comes running out of nowhere and runs into me and spills my coffee everywhere, the question is, why did my coffee spill everywhere? It would be very easy to say, well, Will ran into it. I'd be mad at Will. Will, I can't believe you caused my coffee to spill everywhere. His tears ran down my face. But the true meaning is coffee spilled out of my coffee mug because I put coffee in it. If I had water in it, water would have spilled out. And that's how our heart works. And that's what Jesus is saying, that what your heart is full of will come spilling out. It's not, I, you know, we've seen this all the time with broadcast everywhere. People saying, well, that wasn't me. This was just a bad thing going on. Jesus says, no, that is you. When you unleashed anger on a referee, when you did this, when you got caught doing that, don't say that wasn't me. That is you. What the mouth speaks, the heart is full of. Randy Smith writes that although the tongue is capable of great destruction, the tongue in and of itself is not the ultimate culprit. The ultimate culprit is the heart. The tongue is simply a conduit or pipeline from the heart. Therefore, proper speech reveals a good heart, while improper speech reveals a bad heart. Our words reveal our heart, and our heart reveals our true master, our true allegiance, and our true citizenship. It's that simple. So point number two, killing them softly with our words. Killing them softly with our words. You see, we would never think that we could be guilty of murder simply because of something that we yelled at another driver, right? Like we, we can't be guilty of murder just because that person doesn't understand how dumb they are and I had to explain it to them in as many words. But also, like, that person knows I really care for them just because I called them that name. They know I wasn't serious or, or they just caught me at a bad time or a bad day or they've done it so many times. Like, We think because we are using words and not weapons that we aren't really hurting them when in reality we are just killing them softly. See how that word works, softly? Well, I killed them, but it was soft. Oh, okay, well, as long as it was soft. We are killing them with our words, softly. We're not going to take a weapon to them, but we will go for the heart. Notice the next stop that Jesus takes his listeners to, verse 22, uh, kind of in the middle of the verse. He says, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. I don't think I've ever heard anyone here call somebody else Raka, so you're all good. In fact, it's actually hard to, uh, there really isn't an interpretation of raka. It was an Aramaic word, and it was used primarily as a, a curse. Not like cursing, but as a curse. The closest thing that we can kind of find out from it is somebody saying empty-headed, but it also was hoping for ill will for that person. It was also wishing just bad things would happen to that person. It was basically telling them that they were not as smart as you. So again, it was more of a, a curse than, than name-calling. It was wishing the other person ill will. 
And back in this day and culture, calling someone a name was highly offensive because ultimately you were taking away their own identity and you get to choose the replacement for them because of something that you think about them. It was really a form of identity theft. I have now taken your identity from you and I have labeled you as this. And so whatever you have done, are doing, however God created you, I've now replaced it with what I think. And then he continues on. says, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, quite many years ago, I don't even know if anybody was here at the time, maybe like four of you. We did a uh, series through Proverbs talking about the fool. And in Hebrew, there's actually five different words that we translate to fool. And so this fool is, uh, this has a lot of other connotations to it. This has a lot of moral connotations. We're attached to this form of you fool. And it was much more than just opposed to when we think of fool as someone that makes foolish decisions. Uh, Immediately you might be thinking, okay, last week we just read Jesus calling the Pharisees and scribes you fools over and over again. Uh, There was a different word of the word, but if Jesus labels somebody, he created them. If Jesus is calling somebody a fool, you should pay attention because they were religious leaders claiming to know God more, and they were leading people, as Jesus said, straight to hell. So Jesus calling somebody a fool is much different than you calling somebody a fool. Jesus flipping over tables and having righteous anger is much different than you flipping over tables and having righteous anger. I actually, I've been trying to figure out what righteous anger is for years. I know I don't have it. I'm a human being. I can talk about it. I'm more than happy to talk about it. I just can't figure it out. Today, and I feel like I have to explain this because today we would never call somebody a name. This is over 2,000 years ago, and back then they called each other names. Uh, It was offensive to be called a name. They would say mean, degrading, demeaning things to people. But now, thankfully with technology and improvements as human beings, I have to explain this to you. And you're shocked that somebody would call somebody another name, especially in a church setting. Thank you, Sal. Obviously, name-calling, mocking, and ridiculing each other still exist, as do all the same sins that have plagued our hearts and minds since sin first entered the world. But did you notice where murder starts? Sinful thought patterns begin in the heart and mind. This leads to a distorted view of another human being and cursing them, which leads to name-calling, which is really identity theft by you deciding a person's value and ultimately insulting God by saying that what he created, you have deemed not good enough or that God has made a mistake. The evil in our hearts comes spewing out of our mouths, notifying everyone around us, including the person we are attacking, that our heart is not in a place of proper worship of God. In fact, we have replaced God because we have deemed his work not good enough and not up to our standard. So we go through James, James 3, starting in verse 2. James writes, We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. 
When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have, made, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water water. Are you getting that whole conviction thing I was talking about earlier? So how do we apply this to our lives? For application, I want you to write down, how do we heal a broken heart? How do we heal a broken heart? I'm going to give you three questions to ask. I want you to know that we tend to think of the offended person as the person that is heartbroken, and yes, absolutely. But what Jesus is letting them and us know is that those who are angry, hurtful, bitter, hateful, and those who are calling other people names and demeaning and degrading others are the ones who are informing the people around them that their heart is broken meaning the heart was intended and created for God-honoring worship, but when it is being used apart from that, it will show itself. Remember, Jesus said the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So question number one, are you living in the spirit or the flesh? Are you living in the spirit or the flesh? Write down 1 John 4, I'm going to start in verse 13. John writes, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 
or wife or husband or child or parents or you name the list. That's my words, not his. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith, who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus knows that we cannot love as he created us to love, being apart from him. And so he has given us his spirit, and he's saying, when that spirit is alive in you, you will love as God loves. We go back to it a lot in Galatians chapter 5. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. These are the things that we demonstrate. In Galatians 5.22, he gives us a list. You will demonstrate, if you walk in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul writes, against such things there is no law. That's the Spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is if we are operating in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, there's no law against those. That's us demonstrating that the spirit is alive in us. So this is our check. We've talked about this a lot over the last year. It's really fun to go over this during election years. How are you living out? Your life tells you if you're walking in the flesh or if you're walking in the spirit. Your response to the things in everyday life demonstrate to you if you're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. Which brings us to question number two. Have you reconciled? Have you been reconciled? Number one, have you been reconciled with God? God loves you so much that he gave his son to come and die for you so that we can have that relationship with him when we call out and make him the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. But if you are a believer and, and you say you follow God and, and you are living this way, but if you are a human being, chances are you've offended somebody or you've been offended by somebody. Or you've sinned against someone or someone has a sinned against you. And so the question is, have you been reconciled? And so I want to walk you through these steps of reconciliation that Jesus and God's word explain to us. Understand number one, only God can create a clean heart. Only God can create a clean heart. In order to be reconciled, it starts with our own brokenness. And when I think of brokenness, I think of David. David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, found out and got scared, so he made sure her husband was killed, tried to cover it up. And the prophet Nathan comes in as God sent him to, and he confronts David and tells him that that child that Bathsheba has, because he's trying to, pre he's trying to present himself, David is trying to present himself that everything's okay. Oh, Bathsheba's husband was killed. Well, I'm going to take her into the kingdom. Look how awesome I am. No, David, you had him killed. And he thinks he's got it all covered up. And Nathan confronts him. 
And again, it's hard to think of David, a man after God's own heart, who is a murderer and an adulterer. By the way, next week we get into adultery. Come on back. David demonstrates brokenness. That's what David's example is to us, is a broken spirit. And David writes Psalm 51. Verses 10 through 12, he says, he's calling out to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Starts with our own brokenness, our own recognition that we have wronged somebody. So we recognize the problem starts in our hearts and we confess. First John 1, 8 through 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Look what Jesus says in verses 23 through 24. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary. Jesus is saying, make reconciliation priority number one. Why? Because our worship is disrupted because our heart is wrong. David continues in Psalm 51 verses 14 through 17. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. Do you understand? When you have called people names, when you have been angry at people, you have committed bloodshed. Jesus is saying you are just as guilty as David when he's writing this. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Understand that God wants our hearts, not behavior modification. God wants our hearts. The work starts in our heart. people that Jesus is talking to, and again, this might be hard to relate to, but they were more concerned about other people seeing them go through the act of worship than their actual heart of worship. They were more concerned about their appearance and what other people saw when they would come together as God's children than they were of where their heart was, the condition of their heart. Make reconciliation happen quickly. Have a conversation. He says, do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Back then, if I wanted to take somebody to court, let's say I want to take Sal to court, and I would go to him, and it's not just a confrontation. I'd say, Sal, you and I are walking to the court right now. What Jesus is saying is when you are confronted to go to court like this, you better make friends with that guy that's bringing you to court. But you better figure out, you better come to him with a broken spirit and understanding that you are wrong. Because your own pride, that self-defense lawyer that lives in all of us, will kick in and justify ourselves. 
And on the way to court, he's saying, once you get to the court, then you're turned over to the judge. And that's up to the judge to make a decision. And as right as you think you are in your mind, by the way, I have worked in rehab centers and halfway houses, and I've worked in all these places. I've never met an innocent person in my life. At least that's what they tell me. We all can justify what we do. In fact, there's a story of a, a notorious killer back in like the 1920s. Killed all sorts of people, robbing banks, and he killed police officers, and he killed innocent bystanders. They finally found him, and there was a huge shootout. The police finally killed him. And when they went through the body, he had a letter, and all it said was, I promise I'm not really a bad person. We can justify ourselves constantly. That's what Jesus is saying. You better humble yourself, and you better make friends with your adversary, because once you get to judgment, it stops there. You may found out that you have a faulty defense mechanism. So make reconciliation happen quickly, because there is a cost. There's judgment. Jesus says there's judgment. Do this, or there's judgment. Do this, or you're going to have the courts. And then finally he says, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Understand when he's talking about being cast into prison, he's saying that the, the, in the Roman and Jewish culture, it was what called a debtor's prison. We see Jesus talk about this in one of his parables. He says this man forgave this man of a little amount, but he owed this other man basically a year's wages all in one lump sum. He was forgiven all the yearly wages, and he goes back, and he wants basically, hey, you got five bucks that you owe me. And the guy says, no, I don't have it. He goes, throw this man in debtor's prison. And when the master finds out of all the debt that he forgave him, he says, yeah, have this man killed. The story of forgiveness, a story of making things right. And that's what this debtor's prison was. He says, if you end up owing just one, what our term would be penny, here he's talking about the Roman term, which is very similar. He says, you will be put in prison. You'll be locked up until that last penny is owed. This is a demonstration to you and I that even just the smallest little sin or thought has separated us from God. It is, again, a desperate need to show us our need for Jesus' righteousness because we cannot achieve our own righteousness by ourselves. Michael J. Wilkins writes that unreconciled anger is the inner equivalency of murder, which is impossible to repay. To leave problems unreconciled is to allow the sin that has been created to continue to destroy relationships between people. Now, question number three, our last question. Is God on display in your heart? Is God on display in your heart? Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 29, says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
to God. When we are not building others up, when we are not trying to help other people with our speech, with our words, notice this includes everybody in this passage. This includes athletes. This includes people you see on the news. This includes politicians. This includes that person in your town you don't care for. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Living this way sets us apart as the children of God. Being able to have conversations, being able to go to somebody that has offended you, going and making things right, going and, and dealing with these things and making sure that we are reconciled to each other from as diverse a background as possible, that we can come together, that's unity. That's unity that we can come together and demonstrate forgiveness, demonstrate being compassionate, demonstrating being kind. Now, when it comes to dealing with anger, there is so much to be said that we could easily do an entire series for the rest of Hope Church's existence on anger, but instead, I'll tell you, come and ask for help. Come and ask for help. Like I said at the beginning, you know me. You may have even watched sports with me. You know I don't have this on lockdown. You know, I need help just as much as you do. Let's have a conversation. Ask for help. We just went through James 1. If you're in our James Bible studies that are happening on different mornings, evenings, days, if you aren't, please come and talk to us. Let us know. We'd love to get you in one. But we just talked in James 1 that trials turn into either temptation and sin or opportunities to grow and to build up perseverance. So are you going to grow in perseverance and wisdom of God? Because I promise you, God will continue to give you trial if you continue to fall into temptation. God will allow those trials to keep happening and Satan will keep attacking you as long as you're not trying to build up perseverance and gain God's wisdom. So come talk to us. Again, Jesus is pointing out the mark of righteousness that he knows no human could ever fulfill without Jesus. And he does this to destroy our thoughts of self-righteousness in order for us to see our spiritual bankruptcy and desperate need for his righteousness. Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that we can never attain. Jesus is calling us to himself. The people on that hillside, on the mountainside, are so concerned because they're thinking, how could I ever achieve this type of righteousness? Maybe you're sitting here going, I just can't do it. I'm driving home and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to be patient. Even though I've told my child a billion times. Or I'm going to be patient. That's it. I, I feel bad. Uh, I'm not going to admit I'm wrong because that's going to mess with my pride. But I'll just try to live better. We've all been there. If you haven't, let me know. I'd love to talk to you and pick your brain. Jesus pointing out, no, 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 you need me. This is only possible because of me. 
He isn't just le- hanging us out there for us to feel bad and walking away. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Same thing First John says, his, 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 his commands are not burdensome. Why? Because he's doing it through his Holy Spirit that indwells us. The people on that mountainside were worn out. They were tired. They've been trying to live. They've been trying to live to please everyone around them. They've been trying to look right. And it's exhausting. And maybe you're here and you're saying it is so exhausting trying to come to church and make sure everybody thinks that everything's fine at my home, that everything's fine at work, that everything's fine with my roommate, that everything's fine in my neighborhood. And I know the words to say and I know the cliches to use, but I am exhausted because I'm doing it on my own power. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Randy Smith says, our mouths are not factories trying to manufacture proper speech, but rather fountains in which proper speech overflows from hearts that are being transformed by the Spirit. As Jesus said, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. John C. Broger, who was a missionary in the early 1900s to Asia, he says, your words and the manner in which you speak are critical to harmonious relationships. As you learn to speak the truth in love, you must also determine when to speak, how to speak in an edifying manner, and to whom you should speak. The power of your words is enormous. And they also show the condition of your heart. Even your idle words will be accounted for in the day of judgment. Hope Church, there is a lot at stake with our words. They are revealing where our heart is and what it is worshiping. Our words demonstrate whether we are worshiping a God of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or worshiping the God of our flesh. Hope Church, please, let's help each other out. Hope Church, if there's somebody that you need to make things right with, do not delay. Don't leave the parking lot until you make things right. Don't go to bed tonight until you make things right. Talk to us. Talk to me. We're in this together. I assure you, we are in this together. We love you. We want to please God together. We want to worship him together. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, honestly, there's times where it just crushes me. This is one of those times. Lord, I know I need to confess my angry heart, my thoughts, my words to you. Lord, I pray for all of us here. Lord, I pray first and foremost, if there's anybody here this evening who's never made you the forgiver of their sins and the leader of their life, that tonight they would call out to you. 
Lord, our prayer is that we are a demonstration to you. And so, Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you convict our hearts, that you allow us through your spirit to operate as how you want us to operate, that we would recognize our broken hearts, that we would cry out to you, that we would go to the people that we've wronged, that we would go get help. We would get into a discipleship relationship that we would do the things that are necessary to do to please you. That we would worship you. That we would be a demonstration in our communities, our neighborhoods, our homes, our families, our marriages. That we would be a demonstration that because of you, we are different. Because of you, we have hope. Because of you, we have joy and forgiveness. And Lord, we know we must demonstrate that to others. Lord, work in our hearts and lives. Draw us closer to yourselves. Draw us closer to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.